This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. There's always debate about government funding. You hear these things all the time. And I'm coming back around to the debate about, um, well, Ontario plays a huge debate in the mayoral election. And yesterday we talked about um, the subsidization, uh, subsidizing of the World Cup of soccer for 2026. It sounds obvious that a soccer fan would look at it only one way, irrationally, and say, bring the games here no matter what. Absolutely, that should be the case. Of course it should. But nonetheless, um, many times there have been controversy about the economic rationale for the cities to put money in to sports. We can't have any tax dollars involved in this new stadium. We've been down that road before. You hear that all the time. When actually proponents claim sports facilities improve the local economy. Well, how could that happen? And why don't we put these billionaire owners on notice and make them do it themselves? Well, most of the time they have been doing it themselves. You just saw Rogers put $300, $300 million of their own money into Rogers Center. And people like the results so far. Maybe after a few years, they figure that pays for itself with word of mouth and more attendance and more people buying the $14 beers. And getting sushi hot dogs. But we've also done this before. We did this before with the Air Canada Center. That wasn't public money even back in 1999. So when we are asked to foot the bill for public money, we kind of turn all the other arguments away. Wait a minute. Won't that create construction jobs? Don't we need that? Well, we need construction jobs for everything right now. Building houses and everything. Wait a minute. People who attend the games or work for the team generate new spending in the community. We're better off having a team than not having a team. Also true. Wait a minute. Doesn't the World Cup attract tourists and companies to our host city? Won't people saying be saying the word Toronto, Toronto, Toronto to billions of people? Because World Cup soccer fans just don't watch their team. Swedes don't just watch Sweden. Uh, Aussies don't just watch Australia. You watch all the matches. You sit there until you're blind. You watched four games in one day. You haven't moved. You made a permanent imprint on the couch. And you heard the word Toronto, Toronto, Toronto. So there's tourism that works, companies that work. I'd call it a multiplier effect because local income creates new spending and job creation. It creates all that stuff. But there's also some bad economic reasoning that leads to the overstatement of things. That's for sure. So there's no question there's going to be debates about this. But what I saw yesterday, I I understand the argument for getting right out of this. I think if a mayoral candidate said, we need to tear this deal up. I don't want these games here under these economic circumstances. I think we have to listen. I don't think it would come to fruition. I think the horse has already left the barn. But it's not unprecedented for a team to pull out three years, three years and two months before these games take place. And I will tell you, if the host cities hadn't been announced yet, let's say they were announced this fall, I think we'd be out. You can text me on that 416-870-6400 if you agree or disagree that this should even be a conversation point. But let me bring this up. Sports gets this bad rap. We're funding sports. We're funding arenas. Remember when Massey Hall got rebuilt? Yeah, Massey Hall shut down for a while and they reopened and... I think Gordon Lightfoot closed it and then they opened it post COVID and it came back 146, 146 million American dollars. That's 186 Canadian as of this morning. And um, I bet you didn't know that the province kicked in a $30 million check. What? Our tax dollars funded Massey Hall. That's a private institution, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Federal government kicked in 30 million as well. What's that? 
Yeah, because they view it as historic. They think it's important to promote the arts. They think it's important to inspire future generations of Canadian artists. But I bet you if I stopped 100 people on the street of Toronto this morning, two might know and one might be able to prove and three might speculate that Massey Hall was mostly fun. Well, 33 percent to 35 percent funded by the federal and provincial government. I bet you you wouldn't know that if you didn't do some digging into it. So there's always government funding for important things that have intangible effects that you can't measure. And I think the World Cup is going to be one of those great debatables these next few weeks as we hear mayoral candidates talk more. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. We're about to talk to the former mayor of Toronto, David Miller, giving us some time. Um, BMO Field was built during David Miller's uh, run as mayor, which was until 2010 when uh, he didn't run again and Rob Ford became the mayor. Let me quickly lay out how BMO Field was built. Because it involved a lot of tax dollars. $63 million to build a stadium. That seems hard to believe now. Um, the Canadian federal government kicked in $27 million. Ontario said, here's another $8 million, And the city of Toronto paid $9.8 million. A far cry from the near $300 million that the city of Toronto looks right now. I think there's going to be federal and provincial investment. Looks on the hook for um, to help out with um, an added construction that will service the stadium for the World Cup in 2026. David Miller joins us right now. Thank you so much for the time. When BMO Field was built in 2007, everybody put money in. I just laid that out. So people always ask, who owns it? Has anything changed since then? The agreement's changed, but the fundamental principle is the same. The City of Toronto owns BMO Field through uh, the Board of Governors of Exhibition Place. It's public land, and one of the conditions when I was in office of the city's participation in building BMO was that it become the owner. The difference is originally Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment operated the field on behalf of the city, and the deal was the profits, if any, were split, but MLSE was responsible for all the losses. That's changed since the renovations were done. And I don't know the specifics of it, but my understanding is basically MLSE is a tenant, but they've got some kind of exclusive rights to the stadium. But that part I can't speak to. There's mm-hmm. The city's still the owner uh, for sure, 100%. When you look at some of the details, and and we can't dig too far into it, all, all we really have is what Ben Spur wrote in the Toronto Star. But does this deal look unconventional for a bidding city to make it seems so to me it, it needs obviously there's major upgrades needed to host the games um and and obviously a ton more seats a third more as a matter of fact no other stadium as we said is, is going to have to go through these things and and just the concept seems to be the man woman walking the street today looks at it and says mlse doesn't put up much risk but they sure gain a lot of benefit and the city's putting up risk and they might gain some benefit is there any other way to view what you've seen from the story no, I, I was very surprised and disappointed to read that article in uh, in the Star, and I'm sure there'll be more coming out about it. it. It really looks like nobody held the city's end up. I think there's a great case to host the World Cup in Toronto. We have incredible soccer here. We have great players on the men's national team from in and around soccer. It will be an overwhelming success for absolute sure. But who's going to benefit from that success? Well, the owners of the professional soccer team are going to benefit. Um, we know for for sure that you know the profile of soccer will go up. The the potential for Toronto FC and its attendance will go up. So I find it very surprising that 
in effect, the city is paying them to take back the use of their own stadium, which the city owns, for the purposes for which it was built. It was built to host these kind of events. That's why it was built in the first place, and that's why public money went into it, to, to build, to host international soccer games specifically, starting with the Under-20 World Cup, Women's World Cup, and now the Men's World Cup. So it's very shocking to me that there has to be some compensation to MLSC. I mean, realistically... The Argos can play away games for a couple of weeks and TFC shouldn't be playing during the World Cup anyway, or most likely won't be. So I, I don't understand it. They should be offering us money because their yeah. team's going to benefit, their sport's going to benefit. And I don't, I don't, you know, I don't think it's great and you don't want to do it and I don't want to do it. I don't want to paint MLSE in a negative light. They're a private business. They're a corporation. They have bottom lines. But I look at it and I go, um, you know, they have every right. Like like an, a stable MLSE is good for the city. No one's talking about ripping franchises out. You see it all the time in North American sport. You follow European soccer. There's always turmoil um, financially with ownership issues. And since MLSE has sort of, you know, planted their, their you know, their stakes, we really haven't had that. People cheer. People, they, they go for it sometimes. They don't. People get frustrated by this player and a general manager. But they're stable. And But I look at this and I go, I don't want to paint them as the bad guys. I just look in this. I just don't think the city had their eye on the ball here in, in the negotiations. I don't think they did. Oh, I, I agree with you, Greg. I mean, lots of people dislike MLSC for all sorts of reasons. We found they were a good partner, but they're mm -hmm. shrewd negotiators. Mm -hmm. And it's the job of the city and the person sitting in the mayor's seat to have their elbows up on behalf of the city. And it sure doesn't look like that happened here. Um, you know, the, the original deal, federal money, provincial money, bit from MLSC, a bit from the city. The city owns the stadium, but MLSC takes the risk on operating it. That makes sense. They know how to run stadiums, but we have a public ownership so we can host future World Cups. So I, I, you know, they've, they've got to negotiate hard from their position. Uh, I just think the city was in a really strong position, and I, I really can't understand why they signed such a weak, weak deal. It's uh, really unfortunate. Former Toronto Mayor David Miller, our guest on 640 Toronto on Toronto Today. Just colloquially, I don't see how the games could lose money in Toronto. I don't. Um, and FIFA and and every other organizing body make sure that that's the case. I've heard people say, well, MLSE knows all the sponsors and the marketing. It's a little bit like the IOC. Like FIFA's going to come in and go, no, that's not our official drink. That's not our official beer. That's not our official hotel. FIFA kind of runs the show like UEFA runs the show for Euros. Like, I don't know how much influence there'll be on the corporate level when the games actually start. No, no, it's FIFA sponsors. That's clear. There's no question about that. These games will sell out. No question <laughs> yeah. about that either. I mean, you know, if we could sell out 80,000 seats. And if, you, if you've been to uh, the Canadian National Men's or Women's team at BMO, it's fantastic. And, you know, 10,000 or seven or 8,000 more seats would sell out every time. So that's not a worry from my perspective. The sponsors aren't a worry. Sure, you want MLSC on side. They're your tenant and they're your partner. Uh, but there's also ways to negotiate to protect the public interest. And I think that's the big thing here. The city's putting up all the money. It's taking all the risk. And um, that's not quite right when a lot of the benefit will go to a private entity. I know so far, um, you, I think to your credit, you've stayed out of um, digging too deeply. We're nine, ten days into mayoral candidates officially announcing to run for the job you had um, until 2010. Nobody wanted to run against John Tory in last fall everybody and their brother and sister feels like they're running this year, but the issues feel more pressing. The times feel more urgent. I know you're back and forth between Toronto and where you are now in BC. You must sense that. Can, just give me a, a sense before you go as just sort of the, the tone of 
the city and how it's viewed and, and just the importance of getting this election right. It is a chance to do something over. And I think people sense that. I, I got to tell you, Greg, uh, people cross the street to, to talk to me uh, in Toronto and every part of it. And what's on people's mind uh, is that the city doesn't feel like what it should be. They're worried about the future of the city. That's what I hear from people. Uh, could be safety, could be all sorts of issues. And I, I think they're looking for some real leadership and not just sound bites either. Coherent uh, answers to the challenges that they see. And my sense of the election is you'll see a couple of candidates come to the fore who people think have real answers to the challenges. And from my perspective, it's about investment. We've got to find some ways to invest in the services uh, that uh, make this city work at its best in you know far more support for mental health services uh dealing with safety from from that perspective the mayor's election in chicago you just saw a mayor get elected saying you know what we need to support our police but even more they need police need support from mental health workers and social workers to to do their job and i think that just might be the winning message in toronto david miller our guest 640 toronto toronto today uh we're out of time thanks very much for the time okay. today keep up the great work there's David Miller joining us on Toronto Today. Really important stuff to get to about where this deal is going to go. And and again, I don't think it's it's not not going to be a mayoral election issue. How does the city move forward? There's going to be a lot of people being quite emotional about this issue. But take the emotion out and look at the economic practicality of it. They signed a bad deal. And we can argue about the why. And it's not like we should ignore the why. But what happens now that a bad deal has been signed? Can you work your way out of it? I think it's going to be an issue for the next several weeks. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. As every day goes by, how can we close our eyes? Until we open up our hearts. My grandma loved Burton Cummings. And, uh, yeah, I'm telling you, Burton Cummings would come on the TV, sometimes even on the Tommy Hunter show, which was, I think, Friday night. Then they moved it to Saturday. Uh, crazy. Crazy. Tommy Hunter was on the same night as Dallas. Like, my mom was in ecstasy. Yeah, you get to see some country music, some tunes and whatnot, some Canadiana, and then uh, JR and Bobby Ewing battling it out. Oh, my. She, I mean, she stopped paying attention to me by the time I was, like, 11. So, you know, she had to have television to get her through the, the nights. <laughs> She's not a drinker. Or she didn't like the electric lettuce. Eric Cam is an economics professor. Now, listen, we played that for you, economics professor for now anyway, at Toronto Metropolitan University. You disparaged uh, Tears Are Not Enough in a text message, and I will not tolerate a song that, that, that can gather Gordon Lightfoot, Joni Mitchell, Mike Reno from Loverboy, Corey Hart, John Candy. I'm not going to tolerate it. Forget it. The problem is, is that you have to look at these things on a comparison basis. And when you look at what they produced in the UK, and then you look at what they produced in the USA, I just thought the song itself left me a little bit lacking. I do like the artists involved. I think everybody you just mentioned is uber talented, but somehow the whole was less than the sum of the parts. So teenage Eric Camp, you were, you were like Alex P. Keaton on Family Ties, weren't you? you uh, honestly, you had pictures of Reagan and Thatcher and you didn't like the idea. You're like, well, let's just let's just let the Africans fend for themselves with this famine thing. Like, honestly, just admit it now. I, you're a capitalist by nature. I know this. Um, I'm a capitalist by nature, but I have to tell you that the big event of my 
young life is the same as yours, which was my mother's birthday, 1985, watching Live Aid for what seemed to be about 24 hours straight on television. It mm. was it was such a humongous event. I loved every single act mm. and waiting to see if Phil Collins could get from the UK to the <laughs> States. That was a that was a, an absolutely oh. great day. But, you know, I'm as Canadian as anybody else. Although that's questionable, yeah, but it know, is. that song for me left me completely lacking. Okay. All right. Enough nostalgia. Uh, although let's get nostalgic and talk about how on this day, on this day, one year ago, we had a 1% interest rate. And that's when the cha- that we'd gone up from 0.50 to 1 from March 2nd to April 13th. And then we went through seven straight increases. We're stuck at four and a half right now. There isn't movement. But this seems to be the big question to me, Eric. If if the United States moves on interest rates, would we follow suit next month? Or can we be independent of, uh, of the U.S. and do our own thing with the Bank of Canada? I actually think we have to follow suit with the U.S. And this is a really big deal. And because Powell in the States indicated that Um, further hikes are coming, probably larger than 25 basis points. And the problem is, is that the Fed impacts us directly. And if Fed rates continue to grow while Bank Canada's uh, remain fixed, our purchasing power, the ability for our dollars to buy goods, falls in terms of the U.S. dollar. And so that starts to greatly affect what our exports and imports look like. And with the fall of SVB and some different other Um, idiosyncrasies in the States, it looks like their rates are going to go up. And I think that is going to put pressure on ours to go up. And whether they do it immediately or they do it shortly after, they don't have a lot of choice because we know that interest rate differentials, inflation differentials between the two countries really matter. And it's already Mm. we're behind the eight ball. We're a small open economy sitting beside a large open economy. And so we're kind of at the whim of what they do to a great extent. Eric Cam's our guest. So is is it that inflation remained too high or the job numbers were too high? Because I've never in this economy now, Eric, I've never understood job numbers dictating how an economy is going, because how many of those jobs are are gig are gig jobs? How many of them are, are, are you making minimum wage? It doesn't tell much about GDP and what people are spending when you just look at job numbers. Is it more that inflation just didn't cool enough? It's 100% that inflation didn't cool enough. You know, the job market is a lagging variable, not a leading variable, which is a fancy way of saying that GDP adjusts first and then affects jobs. Jobs don't affect GDP if you look at the data. So right now, as you said, the Bank Canada kept its target rate for overnight at about 4.5, the bank rate 4.75. So what the Bank of Canada is telling Canadians is that we're on the right track, but we don't want to overdo it. It's a real knife edge because we don't have the ability to control variables in the real world. So what the bank is saying is that we're going to continue its quantitative tightening. That started about a year ago. So they're still going to sell bonds and bring down the money supply, uh, but not raise interest rates. So they're going to try to find that sweet spot, as we say in baseball, Mm. of keeping rates where they are, bringing spending down, but not at the cost of the job market. And as you can imagine, that's a lot of balls in the air at one time. So the bank is taking a wait and see approach. But again, one of those wait and sees is what are our friends from the South going to do? How do we react as uh, it's really difficult, right? Because it varies from street to street, home to home. How do we react to an interest rate? Besides, I'm sure there'll be an emotional reaction, but how will we practically react with our spending or saving? Oh, that's an excellent question. I mean, it's kind of hard to summarize all consumers' preferences. But what tends to happen is that we see when rates go up, 
that saving for those people that have savings tends to go up. I mean, this is not a good time for conspicuous consumption. If you are one of the people that is about $200 away from insolvency, like the conference board says, and that's more people than we want to admit, then right now is the time to save everything you can and put off those big spending items until times are better. I mean, this is historic, historic rises mm. in the cost of borrowing money. As you said, a year ago, money was effectively free and today it's super expensive. So people are voting with their feet and voting with their bank accounts and they're trying to soak away any extra dollars that they can for the rainy day that unfortunately isn't far away for many of these families. Mm. How um, you've, you've got students and what I like about your uh, your in-person touch with your students is not not only do you tell them to listen to 640 Toronto and, and uh, you know, there's no proof that you mark them down if they don't, but whatever, um, is the idea that, that I think you listen to them. You're the father of, of, a, of a teenager as well. So what do kids say? What do university students say about the economic struggles that face them? And again, you're, you're going to hear from all sorts of different kids with different backgrounds different income levels. What do they tell you are the biggest issues for them? Oh, there's one. There's one big issue for them. I have so many students that on a weekly basis ask me, how the hell am I ever going to afford to own a house? It's actually funny, you know, as the time goes on, and I've been in this game now 23 years, it used to be about jobs mm -hmm. and about further education. And no, now there's one thing. The question is, how am I ever going to afford a house in an urban center? And I talk them down from the ledge and we go on about how salaries are going up. But of course, that's a bit of a lie because they're not going up nearly as much as the cost of living. And I try to make them feel better and remind them that that's why they're in school. They're investing in human capital. And there still is there still is a linear relationship between the more education you get, the more salary you earn in the long run. And so that tends to make them feel a little bit better. But yeah, there's one question. Where am I going to live? And is it going to be within two hours of my job, Greg? How many kids do you have that are Toronto proper kids? And how many kids do you have from, from elsewhere? Because I ask that because I always think it's harder to, to grow up, let's say, you know, in the 416 and then have someone exactly say what you said, point to them and go, you know, you can't, <laughs> you're not going to be making enough when you're 24, 25, 26 to stay to live a block from your parents they didn't move there till they were 40 so why do you get the automatic inheritance if you will to live there when you're 24 25 26 same thing you can imagine in journalism school people said to me oh you know there's a reason that some of you will start in Yellowknife and some of you will work in swift current saskatchewan um there's a there's a reason those are the case you're not going to start in toronto vancouver or ottawa most kids don't no, but most kids are fooled into believing that they are. Remember, I'm at Toronto Metropolitan University, which, by the way, if you forget, is the best university at Young and Dundas. And we have about 90% of our students, and that's a huge number, but 90% of our students do not live in residence. Mm -hmm. And about 80% of our students are commuter students. They come from the GTA, the 416, the 905, and they fully expect to stay in the 416-905 as their parents did. And so this is quite shocking to them, the reality that they may for the first time have to actually move to make their living. And frankly, it scares them, Greg, because they mm. just assumed that they would be commuters forever. But the world is changing, the tide is mm. changing, and they're starting to really bite the reality cookie that I'm not going to be able to take the subway to work one day. Eric Cam joining us on Toronto Today on 640 Toronto. Um, what do you make of uh, of the World Cup story? Um, 
And what do you make of, of the idea that the city really doesn't benefit quite as much as a multi-billion dollar company if things go well and the city fares very poorly? I don't know how the World Cup could not make money, but I've been told there's there's a there's a pathway to, to, to doing this wrong. I don't know what it would be. What do you make of the story? The story to me is confusing. And part of it is that we both know that FIFA and the IOC, these are not exactly the least corrupt uh, organizations in the world. So somehow it just furthers from my understanding and my knowledge that while I'm a big fan of these things, I'm a humongous sports fan, mm -hmm. and I know that there's trickle-down effects. I know that these events do make money in the long run for the most part. You knew that in the short run, I think everybody knew in the short run that this was going to take a hit for the city. There seems to be this one-to-one -one relationship between big events and cities paying the brunt and somebody being able to justify to the city, well, if you do it and you put forth the billions of dollars, then for yeah. the next 20 or 30 years, you're going to be on some economic cruise control. Didn't work in Greece, didn't work in other places, but we still have this illusion that if you want to be considered a big time city, you got to hold big time events. So sadly, I'm not shocked. It's, it's, it's unfortunate, but I think it's kind of the price you pay to hold these types of events. And in a place like Toronto, where we know that the public sector is about as inefficient as it gets, how could you argue that it was going to be anything else other than inefficient and expensive? And I, I, I think you make a great point. I also would make the case sports gets a really bad rap um, when public money's involved. But I pointed out at the top of the hour, Massey Hall to renovate Massey Hall, where only so much of the population can afford to go see a show, got $30 million from the provincial government and $30 million from the federal government. Now, that's not as much as BMO's asking, but you can make the case there's more intangible benefit from having the World Cup here than, than what Massey Hall provides. I love Massey Hall, but I can make that case. Oh, I could make the case. Listen, I could make a simple case that there should not be public money thrown at private events. And we could just do it that simply. Yeah. And you would wipe out many, many things. The problem is you'd also wipe out most of the entertainment that you're going to see in your city and those mm. dollars spent. So, again, you know, maybe the theme of this conversation is trade-offs. And you have to trade off mm. the financial costs to hold events, to put your city on the map, mm. to ho hopefully hold future events Um as they come but there's no question that this when this is over and we see a balance sheet you're going to realize that toronto got soaked because unfortunately that's what toronto does in a lot of ways mm. but you got to hope that there's an external benefit for years to come of ho holding these games like happened in los angeles like happened in calgary so let's hope we end up on the wrong right side of history eric thanks so much for the time and i know you're in the middle of exam season enjoy that this is why they pay you the, the mediocre bucks to mark them exams thanks for the time and just to correct, you said I'm in touch with my students. I never touch my students, Greg. Stay no healthy. one uh, in. The used, you used the right word there. I'm often misquoted. That was not a time that happened. Thanks for this. You can hear uh, Dr. Cam on the uh, Roy Green Show as well sometimes on uh, the Chorus Radio Network. Roy's pretty awesome. Uh, two to five o'clock Saturdays and Sundays. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. Tuesday night was the Jays' home opener. And... Um, a familiar face, well, really two familiar faces, posed for a photo. And this ended up on uh, Blog TO. The headline, Sheba, disgraced former mayor of Toronto. Not that one. Yes. And not the other one. Anyway, disgraced former mayor of Toronto shows up at Jay's game and people have thoughts. And how would you describe the photo and who's in it? Okay, so this is... Uh TVO's The Agenda, Steve Pakin. He's at the game, home right. opener, wonderful, having a great time, beautiful day. 
And then right beside him, giving the thumbs, thumbs up, looking happier than ever, is former Mayor John Tory. And people are upset about this because, first of all, he last time I saw him was at that podium uh, where he just, it was so bleak. It was very shocking. He looked absolutely, he looked depressed. He, his eyes were on the ground, uh, staring at the carpet through that entire press conference. Yeah. Uh, and now he looks like a completely different person. Um <laughs> He looks the very weight of the world off his shoulders. I, was I don't say, know. He looks very well rested. He looks great in this picture. Like I haven't seen him look like this in months, maybe years. Uh, but what people are upset about is the way that he looks. He's giving a thumbs up to the camera. He's wearing his wedding ring. He is we wearing his wedding ring. He's got a gold band around his ring finger. Uh, mm. Interesting to note. And people are very upset. A lot of people are feeling like he shouldn't be there or he shouldn't look so happy. Uh, some people think he should be spending the rest of his days, quote, in a prison cell. Oh my gosh! <laughs> okay, so I got three things for you, and I think these are these are the these are the comments and questions people have. One, um, are they upset because he's out? Period, or are they upset because of how the photo seems? I po- I showed the photo to my wife last night, and I said, "Here's how. If I'm going to go out in public, if I am in the first two months after this, and be at a high profile event." Like not in a box, right? Not hiding away, not not being reclusive. Middle of everybody, right? Middle yes. of everybody. Yes. It, it, here's here's my facial expression. And here's what my arms are doing, and she's like, exactly. That's how you do it. And so, really? uh, you know, it, it's ironic. So she's, there's no other way. You think he did the right thing? The way that he looks. The no, no, up? no, no, no. I'm doing. I was a lot more like you know how Bill Clinton would look like serious, yes. and he'd bite his lip, and he'd Remorseful. be like, Remorseful. I feel, I, feel, "I feel your pain." Um, that's not John Tory is like. I'm having the time of my life. I'm yes. about to go on the. I'm about to go on ride to Canada's Wonderland after this. That's what he looks like. He, he looks look euphoric. Like so I've heard. So don't look euphoric if you're going to be out. No. Well, here's the thing. I think the reason people are so upset is because this election that's coming up, the city has estimated it's going to cost thirteen million dollars. Thirteen million. You know where that money could have gone? And never mind the waste of the election in the fall. <laughs> He's just, I feel like people are, and for good reason, people are feeling he's wasted our time, he's wasted our money, and here he is having the time of his life with his thumbs up. And I've heard inklings that he has been out and about subtly here and there, but never so publicly. A lunch here, a visit here. Yes, but I mean, this is like right there, there's, and there is no remorse in that photo. And here's my question. Should there be remorse? What's the protocol? Is he supposed to hide? And how long is he supposed to hide, Greg? Yeah, I don't have the great answer to that. I think two months is early. When I heard, when I heard um, that he was sort of out and about, even I'm like, oh, I don't think we'd hear from her for quite a while. I asked somebody who knows him even just a couple days ago. I'm like, what's he gonna do? And he's like, basically the answer was he'll be on boards. <laughs> he'll yeah. just be on boards. That's, I, yeah, that's that more in private enterprise. That's not front facing. I mean, he's done almost everything he's done. Um, an Ontario uh, party leader commissioner of the cfl um a big wig at rogers where you do have to do what you just mentioned what tony staffieri did he had to do things like that but but i think private life is probably best for him for the time being now i'll, I'll ask you this i don't think it's going to happen here at um global or at 640 if you saw him on election coverage i think isn't that <laughs> But, but, but I know how absurd that sounds Sorry, to people. Sorry, Global. Sorry, Chorus. I'm tuning in. Oh, you, okay. You want it. All right. All right. I'm, well, Let's give I'm, up our salary for a week and, and even throw <laughs> gourds in. 
So they won't be able to afford it for sure. Oh, Gordon, well, you, don't, you, you don't mind. Pizza slice out of yeah, mind. we can have some ramen noodles for a week or so. <laughs> we'd, we'd give that up for for John Tory to sit between Alan Carter and Farah Nasser or whoever they're going to bring in. Why not? Sean O'Shea. You got, you got David Aiken might come in, in with, with the I'm electoral CDM. map. I know it's not a national election, but you'd be so watching. Do, wait, do you think it's a possibility <laughs> that he could cover some kind of mayoral election coverage? I think it's a one in five possibility. And and again, the irony is, and for um, analysis on this special Toronto mayoral by-election, let's turn to the person who caused the special (laughs) Toronto mayoral by-election. You can't ask, what would you do as mayor? Um, Well, I was going to do this. But you would watch, like, I, I see all the time people criticizing public figures. Like, uh, here's what, I'm not the biggest Piers Morgan fan. I'm not. I'm not at all. But Piers Morgan gets interviews and people are like, damn it, how'd he get that person? How'd he get that person to sit down with them for the first time and talk? And they watch it. And whether they hate watch it or they admit they watch it or whatever. It's true. It's true. Now, now, back to the crux of the issue, I wouldn't be doing what he's doing. And here's, let's turn now to Steve Pakin. Yes. There's so I, much analysis here. I don't think Steve, Steve Pakin's got that look with the photo like, oh, crap. No, no, not really. Because, a little. Hold on. So Steve and I Pakin, like Steve Pakin. Steve I Pakin do. You know that. Steve Pakin was tweeting. He was on social media that night. What he was. He posted a video of the opener. He was taking some pictures. <laughs> but there was no sign of any John Tory beside him. Well, you're making my point. He, he, why Why wouldn't, if you're, if you're oh, with if somebody who's up. a famous buddy, you wouldn't be like, hey, John, Brady. let's send a quick selfie out on the little tweet box there with the little Brady, bluebird Brady, if thing. you go anywhere with John Tory, people will find out. Anywhere. Especially, so the Jays home <laughs> opener, Steve knows exactly what's going to happen. He knows exactly what's going to happen. Yeah, I guess, I guess, but does he, okay, does... And does a, that, does this change, do you think this changes people's views about Steve Pinkin? No, do you? I don't. No, that's his friend. That's just been his friend for four decades. It's his pal. Okay, but if you have a friend who's a complete loser or has done something absolutely... That's not who John Tory no, is. No, no, I'm not saying John Tory, but let's just say he's done something very, very controversial. Okay, and co- and that's cost a lot of people a lot of money. Are you going on public with this person two months later, mm. knowing that you're going to get photographed? Yeah. I, I think you should just lay low. But, I, I, I but, would rather John laid low. I, okay, I, I, would, these, I, and I would have he told isn't. him that if I'm Steve. There's a reason he isn't though, Brady. There is a reason. That's what I'm saying. I, well, I don't know what's so coming. So what's next? That's, that's it. Can Let's we handle another bombshell? Sheba, could we really handle another John Tory bombshell over I'm the next few months? I'm going to make the popcorn for both of us. For all three of us, I'm making that popcorn because something is coming. You don't go out in public two months after you've disgraced the city, your family, your wife yourself uh, and give a thumbs up like that. You might as well be giving the middle finger in that picture. Okay, let, let's put the picture on the AM640 um, Twitter account. <laughs> see what people think. Here's what I'd say. Here's what I'd say really quick. On a scale of Steve Pakin looks thrilled as a 10, Steve Pakin looks devastated as a 1. Sheba, he's a 4. He's oh, not... I think he's a 7. He's not an 8. or No, he's no. not a 7. He's, he's not happy that this is happening. And he doesn't know John's going to be like, yay, <laughs> lucky here. Screw you, Toronto. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. What does restorative justice mean to you? And what could it mean to um, a sexual assault survivor? Um, they feel in many cases, not to generalize, but that the court system has let them down. And there seems to be either take it all the way and go to court or... 
or do nothing and say nothing. And that's not a great that's not a great set of choices. So maybe there are more choices there. Our next guest is a litigator and mediator with Paradigm Law, and she thinks there's a different way and a better approach. She is Robin Parker and joins us now on Toronto Today. Robin, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thanks very much for the time today. Good morning. It's a pleasure to join you this morning. How are you doing? I'm really Where's good. Thank. Yeah, I'm really. I mean, it's fun. It's fun to see. We've waited a long time for this. When I lay that out and I go, there really are traditionally two choices: say and do nothing in in a legal um, sense, or take this all the way. And people aren't the idea of open dialogue and restorative justice isn't about what the court system is about. So it's about getting a result. Is is are there better options? It feels like than just these two. Well, that's exactly what we're saying, and um, I'm part of a group who are trying to work towards having the Minister of Justice, both provincially and federally, understand that there's a very large group of survivors who want alternatives. You know, um, in 2018, Stats Can surveyed 43,000 Canadians, and only 5% of people in that group who'd been sexually assaulted in the previous 12 months reported. That's 95% of people who aren't reporting. Mm. And another stat just to chew on is that 30% of Canadian women say they've been sexually assaulted. That's about 6 million women. So we know that these people are not inside the justice system. And the question is, why? Why? And how are we failing them? I'm glad you laid that out, Robin, because I think there's a misperception out there that since the Me Too movement or in the last several years, there have been more cases reported and prosecuted. I'd make the case that in workplaces, perhaps there's more mediation and there's more people coming saying not necessarily an assault, but saying there's a sexual harassment. There's a person saying things or, or doing things that aren't OK. And there are men and women reporting this probably more in private um, workplaces, but not in the court system, per se. When you say that, I think, well, not much is changing. And people that want justice aren't getting, you know, aren't getting heard any more than they were 10 years ago. I think that one thing of the Me Too movement that's great is a decrease in shame. Mm-hmm. And although individual people do feel ashamed about what happened and responsible and have to deal with, you know, trolls and negative comments, I think people are talking about it more and there is a cultural shift. And that's part of why survivors now are going to the justice system and saying, we want to do something different. We want to speak directly to our accuser and we want to have a process that's mediated, that's done um, skillfully and effectively, where we communicate to them the harm that they did to us and we ask them to do what they can to make it right. I mean, that's a big overview of what restorative justice looks like. The problem is, is that the Crown has a policy in Ontario that restorative justice is not allowed for sexual assault cases. And that's because they say the cases are too serious, which they are. They're very serious. But what happens then, and we have clients who experience this, they say to the Crown, I don't want to testify. I want restorative justice. The Crown says, no, you have to testify. They say, we don't want to. And the Crown says, okay. And then they withdraw the charges. That's a really heartbreaking lost opportunity for someone who, um, you know, we had a chance as a society to Mm -hmm. educate that person and we completely failed. And there's a, 
There's a ripple effect, isn't there, Robin, in that um, that and certainly publicity around that case is that uh, a case like that and some of the high profile cases. I mean, I said I watched Christine um, Blasey Ford's testimony about Brett Kavanaugh and you look and go. Yeah. The courage, regardless of where this goes, her not getting heard would discourage so many women. I'd even say something as salacious as, as Amber Heard's accusations about Johnny Depp. Somebody would say, I can't go through that kind of grilling from Johnny Depp's lawyer. I'll bring it back locally. The the Jan Gameshi um, scenario, I, like yeah. it, it felt like it was discouraging instead of encouraging of somebody saying, you know what, something like that happened to me. I'm furious about it and I need to do something. I don't want people to be discouraged by sort of how the media and how we've covered those cases. Well, yeah, the thing, Christine Blasey Ford is a hero and uh, she, she knew what she was doing mm-hmm. and she knew what the result would be. And she did it so she could speak. She was empowering herself and other women by telling her, her, her what happened to her. Um, and I do think, although um, it's really disappointing uh, it's, it's really hard to wrap your head around the fact that um, he was still appointed to the Supreme Court. But when we look at the system as a whole overall, you know, crime in Canada is actually decreasing and sexual violence is the only crime that is staying steady or yeah. increasing slightly. And so we have to ask ourselves just sort of in a big picture way, you know, how can we change the system? Because what we're doing now isn't working. And so when individual people who are directly affected, who feel empowered enough now because of the Me Too movement, because of heroes like Christine Blasey Ford, to come forward and say, this happened to me, and I want something different. um, I think we need to listen. I think we need to listen. And I was one of those people. Mm -hmm. And um, for some reason, the Crown agreed in my case to give me restorative justice in 2018. Is that because I'm a lawyer with 28 years of experience because I knew people in the system? I don't know. And I'm incredibly grateful to that crown for taking that risk and Mm. giving me that opportunity because it made a huge difference in my life. And I saw the difference that it made to the person who had harmed me. And I just want to be able to build a pathway for Mm. other survivors women and the men too who are now starting to come forward and speak more openly Mm. about harm they experience to have another option so that maybe more of us can have that conversation and we can generate change make society safer robin parker is joining us from paradigm law i got about a minute here but i think the, the crux of our conversation is rather than asking what law was broken, who broke it, how should they be punished, and trying to get a court result. This is more about who was harmed, what happens now, what do they need, whose obligation is it to meet those needs. That sounds like the latter more than the former is what we need. Exactly. In the criminal justice system, we ask ourselves as a society, what do we do about the antisocial behavior of this person? And that's the focus of it, and it should be the focus of it if we're going to take away somebody's liberty and restrict their future employment. It has to be the person who's been accused. That's correct in the criminal justice system. And what we're saying is let's shift and create a system where we look at the person harmed, exactly like you you just said, Greg, and that, and that, that, that creates a different kind of conversation that one we don't have inside the courts. 
definitely. Robin, your, your conversation with me meant a lot. Let's do more of these, and I hope it's not our last one. Thanks for laying this out there. We're getting a lot of response to it as well. So thank you for taking your time and telling your story and, and how we can move this forward. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to share what I've learned. You bet. Robin Parker joining us on Toronto Today. Like, I, I know at first you're like, oh, come on, you got to go to the court system. Sometimes somebody who's violated, they want to hear the person who assaulted them say, you're telling the truth. I did this to you. It's my fault. It's not yours. And they may not get that with a court case. And they may not get that even with a guilty conviction and a prison sentence. They want you to, to, to own what you did.